in, uh, in seminary. Seminary is the graduate school that um, people go to. They want to become uh, ministers. And in seminary, one of the required courses is a course called homiletics. Or in, simply put, it's a, ter- it's a class about preaching. Students get together. They learn how to put together a, a sermon. And eventually... They will have to, in that class, prepare their own sermon. They have to preach it. And then they have the professor and the fellow students uh, critique it. Well, this morning, we're going to critique the first recorded sermon of the church that was preached by the Apostle Peter and see what we can learn uh, from that. I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 39, you're also welcome to take the uh, insert that you'll find uh, in your bulletin. And unusual for me is I actually have a sermon outline, uh, which I normally don't have because it takes me too long to prepare a sermon. But um, this is actually the outline of Peter's sermon, so it was easy to, um, to put together. Well, this sermon, as you know, was preached on the first day of what is called the church's birth, on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come down upon the disciples so that they had been in this house. They, they leave the house, they go out, and they begin to, to preach their individual sermons about, we're told here, the mighty works of God. And what's unusual about their preaching is that they're preaching in different languages. The languages of their hearers. Their hearers are Jew, Jewish folks who have been living around in different parts of the Mediterranean. And they who have come together made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And, um, and so they are hearing in their own language these different sermons. So we're going to pick up the narrative from there in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So Peter, as we know, Peter is the representative head of the disciples. He takes this opportunity when he hears the response to deliver his sermon. And even though, here's what I want us to know, though he's delivering it spontaneously, You know, the Holy Spirit has just come upon them all, and he's just getting up there and preaching. We're going to see how this Spirit-filled sermon is a well-structured exposition of Scripture. And no doubt his homiletics professor would have given him a high grade for this, for how well thought out his structure is. There's an introduction There is a three-point message, and then there's a conclusion with an appeal for action. So let's look, first of all, at that introduction. Okay, look with me in verses 14 to 15. So Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter draws his hearers by taking a subject matter, 
that the hearers are already interested in, and he's using that now to draw their attention to himself, to his message. Okay. Their attention has been on this, this phenomenon of, of, of all these different languages that the disciples are preaching in. So he latches on the words of the critics, okay? the ones whom, or he engages the ones who, who would have been most skeptical and been least willing to listen. Okay? So that's how he introduces, and so he now launches into his three-point sermon, which is set up by three different scripture texts. So look with me at point number one. It begins in verse 16. This is about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And and now he's quoting from Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, unfortunately, Peter does not comment further. And I suspect that the professor now might might give him a little bit lower mark about that part. You know, Peter, you need to go into a little bit about this. But it would not be because Peter had misinterpreted the passage or that he's misapplying the text. First of all, with this particular scripture, he's explaining to his hearers, and most of them, by the way, they would have understood exactly what he's doing, why he's quoting this. But he's explaining that this phenomenon that the hearers are witnessing, this is the outpouring of God's spirit, as was foretold by the prophet Joel. The disciples are not drunk. They are spirit-filled. And being spirit-filled, by quoting this scripture, he's pointing out that this is a biblically sound experience. The second point that he's making with this passage, that this occasion of the outpouring of the Spirit testifies to a new era. This is the era of the last days. Now, we don't have time to go into that whole concept and, and Look at this passage. But understand that Peter is making clear that what is happening is not just kind of a chance spectacle. Something that just happens to have, this is kind of neat, and now life goes on in its regular way. Rather, everyone present is witnessing the beginning of a new age in the history of God's kingdom. It is new in in a sense, not in the sense of being a new concept. Joel, for one, and there were other prophets as well, had prophesied of its coming. It is new, and that finally the prophecy is being fulfilled. 
This new age has begun. So he addresses in his first point what really is engaging the attention of his hearers. He now turns his focus to Jesus. And he will have a number of things to say. But I want, as I read the next passage, I want you to be looking and detecting what you see as his primary point. That primary point, for that, he's going to be turning to Psalm 16. Look with me in verse 22. I'm going to read down to verse 32. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and this is the quote from Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness. With your presence. Now here he does comment. Okay. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Okay, let's look back over here. What is it that Peter notes about Jesus? Well, first of all, that he did signs and wonders. That was in verse 22. And these signs and wonders testified that he was from God. Secondly, that he was delivered up to be crucified. And note how he says this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' crucifixion did not happen because of just unfortunate circumstances. It fit into God's plan. So, Jesus was sent by God, as attested by the miracles. He was crucified according to God's plan. And most importantly, which we'll see in verses 24 following, God raised him from the dead. So, Peter demonstrates then how David in Psalm 16 spoke of this, prophesied about the Messiah, the Christ to come. He notes, beginning in verse 29 following, David is he's not just a king, he's a prophet. And he's looking ahead to what God will do. 
David cannot mean himself when he talks about being raised. How do we know that? As David explains, his body is in the grave. It has been corrupted. Peter, David then, can speak, though in the first person. He can say, I and me, because he's applying the prophecy to his own descendant. Now, note further something else that Peter does here. He makes repeated reference to God. You read these. He speaks of a man attested to you by God, signs that God did through him. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God raised him up. God had sworn with an oath to him. This Jesus, God raised up. Now, what is Peter doing here? Well, he's reinforcing that far from Jesus' death, meaning that he was cursed by God, it all points that Jesus was favored by God. That's what Psalm 16 also reinforces. The portion that he reads here from Psalm 16, what does he say? David, speaking on behalf of Jesus, says that the Lord is at his right hand protecting him. The Lord will not abandon him. The Lord is with him and makes him glad. And indeed, that very term, holy one, it actually would it more closely refers to is someone who has a favored relationship with God. So, let's look back here again. We got Peter's first two points. First point, the Holy Spirit is being poured out and is ushering in a new age. Second point, this new age centers around the works of Christ. All the mighty works that he did, the miraculous signs, More importantly, his death and his resurrection. Now he's getting to the crowning point, point number three, about what all this signifies about Jesus. And for that, Peter will turn to another psalm. This time it will be Psalm 110, beginning in verse 33. Being therefore... Exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and this is the quote from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What's Peter saying here? Well, he's noting, first of all, before he noted that Jesus had died according to God's plan. That Jesus was raised by God. Now he's pointing out that Jesus has ascended into heaven. He is exalted at the right hand of God. And then see how Peter neatly brings this sermon together. He's going to do it in verse 33. This phenomenon of speaking in tongues that the hearers have been witnessing, he notes that this was all brought about 
by Jesus. It is Jesus who has poured out the Holy Spirit. Now, see again also, I want you to note God's role that David points out. Jesus is is where? He's at the right hand of God. He has received from God the Father, the Holy Spirit. God is the Lord who is speaking to David's Lord. God is the one who makes Jesus both Lord and Christ. So again, far from Jesus' crucifixion being a sign of being cursed by God. No, it is the obedient action of Christ that has led to his exaltation above all creation. Now, no doubt with these last two points, I think Peter would have earned high marks from his homiletics professor. But a good sermon has to conclude with a compelling appeal. And this is what really makes the sermon at the end. And we'll see that appeal in verses 37 to 39. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Well, his hearers have been cut to the heart. Because what was the last thing that Peter had said to them? This Jesus whom you crucified. And there's no mincing of words to this audience, is there? This audience would have included people who were present when Jesus was crucified. Maybe some of them even in some way had participated in that. Now, they could have responded in anger. Fortunately, this is where the Holy Spirit is at work. And they have become convicted. What then does Peter tell them? Okay, here's his appeal. Repent and be baptized. Repent. Turn from your sinful path. Be baptized as the sign of your repentance, that you are starting a new life. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, showing that you are giving your allegiance to him and that you're acknowledging that it is in him alone is the forgiveness of sin. Now, note what, they, what Peter does not call them to do. He does not say repent and start doing a better job of obeying the law. Repent and make up for all the wrong that you have done. No, they're being called to repent and to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. So that's what baptism is about. There is a call in baptism to turn from one's allegiance, from a a sinful something, to a good something else. Then that sinful something, it could be just the outright sinful rebellion, the active evil, as in those, for example, whom Peter is pointing out to, who somehow were accomplices in Jesus' death. 
But it also might be the sinful trust in a false salvation. And that applies to everyone who were depending on their religious observances. For example, some of them no doubt were there for Pentecost, had made that pilgrimage to earn favor with God. Now, forgiveness of sins is found in placing, this is Peter's point, oneself under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is found in believing that Jesus is the anointed one of God. That's what all that sermon has been leading to. And it is Jesus who has done that work of earning forgiveness and salvation by his work on the cross. And it was testified that that work was received by his resurrection. So with that call to repent, to believe in Jesus, then comes a promise. And this brings, really, the sermon around in full circle. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, remember, upon the disciples. That's what was drawing the attention to the crowd. That's what presented Peter, his his opportunity to preach. Well, now that same outpouring of the Holy Spirit is promised to the hearers, if they will respond. Now, how good was this appeal? Well, next week we're going to see that 3,000 people responded and did just what Peter called them to do. No doubt he gets an A-plus for that sermon and that appeal. Well, let's, let's look back for a moment and consider the, the lessons. Let's do a little bit of critiquing of Peter's sermon here. What is it that makes his sermon so effective? Besides, I mean, what makes him so effective is he's got the Holy Spirit pouring out his power upon that preaching. But let's take a look at just what he had done. And we had mentioned, or I had mentioned here, that, that though Peter is suddenly empowered by the Holy Spirit, this is just coming at the spur of the moment. Peter did not know that he was going to be preaching that day. He's still revealing here a well-thought-out structure. What he had preached, no doubt, Peter had thought this through before. And indeed, what his preaching revealed is that he had learned very well from his master, from Jesus. What was happening in that time between the resurrection and Pentecost? Well, we know that Jesus was teaching his disciples. What was he teaching them? Well, Luke tells us, it's in chapter 24. Jesus is speaking here. These are my words that I spoke to you, to the disciples, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, this is all of the scriptures, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written. Now listen to this. We've already heard Peter just preach on this. That Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead. That's exactly what Peter preached about. And that, and here's the appeal that Peter made. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins 
should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And here is Peter in Jerusalem, proclaiming repentance, speaking how Christ's death and resurrection is fulfilling the scriptures. So Peter's sermon was being developed as he learned how to apply the scriptures uh, by Jesus and apply those scriptures to Jesus. And so the first lesson is that a good preacher must be steeped in scripture. And specifically to understand Scripture in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. One may be eloquent. One may be, have a lot of charisma, be very winsome. But if Scripture is not expounded, and if that sermon is not Christ-centered, it is an empty message. So Peter's sermon was Scripture-informed, and it was Christ-centered. Now, secondly, he was effective in adapting his message to his particular audience. His audience was made up of Jewish people. And so it was essential that he presented what was happening at that moment and that he presented Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. And his point here is that neither the the Spirit's outpouring nor the person in the work of Jesus were, were like new ideas that were being imposed from the outside on a Jewish religion. They were the fulfillment. They were the enactment of long-believed, long-hoped-for scriptural promise that his hearers would have held dearly. So his his preaching is scripture-informed. It's about Jesus. It's applied specifically to his audience. Peter's also in tune with what his hearer's greatest objection would have been to Jesus. That greatest objection would have been the crucifixion because they would have assumed that his being crucified on the cross meant that he was cursed by God. They got that from the law. Cursed is one who is hung on a tree. So however nice Jesus may have been, that crucifixion meant that he was cursed by God. And so Peter's death handling there of Psalm 16 was showing again and again that everything is acting uh, under God's plan, by God's favor, more than resolved that objection. And then we get to his appeal. I want you to notice how that appeal just cuts, it just cuts straight to the heart, doesn't it? I've listened to, no doubt you've listened to, to excellent sermon presentations. I mean, the, the preacher is building his sermon up to a crescendo. He's using the scriptures. It's all going great. And then it just kind of dies out at the end. He doesn't apply it. He doesn't... Go for a con- conviction. It just, it just kind of ends. Well, Peter gets right to the point. And he's making the same appeal that his master had made when he preached. Do you remember Jesus' very first words? And says when Jesus went out and preached, what did he preach? The very first word? 
Repent. That's the heart of the gospel appeal. You know, we like to, and many preachers like to, is, you know, when we're talking about Jesus to folks, we, we talk about, well, we want people to get to, to know God. You know, to kind of get connected with God. You know, God's not angry with you. God loves you, and he just wants you to know how much he loves you. Well, Peter and Jesus were very clear what everyone needs to do. Repent. Man's problem is not that he's kind of not in tune with God, but that he is a rebellious sinner. We may all have our different circumstances that lead us to God, and we've read different books and heard different sermons in different ways that we were led to God, but ultimately, there's still the one same path we all have to take, and that is to repent of our sinful ways. Now, I'm going to be so bold as to make two criticisms of Peter here, of his sermon. I mean, you can't go to a homiletics class and not be critiqued and be criticized about something here. And the first has to do with Peter's introduction. I, I'm preaching, would have recommended him to have connected that phrase that was used by the scoffers. Remember how they laughed off the disciples? And they had said, well, they're just filled with new wine. And Peter says, oh, no, no, no. It's at, it's at, what is it, the third hour of the morning. It's nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, even last Sunday, even, even Sam commented on, you know, come on, you can do a little bit better than that, Peter. Okay. Now, what I would have said, Peter, you could have responded by saying, Yes, you got it right. We are filled with new wine. It's a new wine of God's kingdom. You know, Jesus had once said that the new wine cannot be put into old wineskins. And what he was saying is you can't take the gospel and put it into the old wineskin of trying to live by the law. Something new has arrived. In this preaching in, in tongues of everyone's languages, it testifies of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a new age. You can't look at the old ways of things. Now, in the second criticism, it's not about the sermon, but it's about how the preacher himself missed the significance of his own words. Peter had quoted when he was quoting from Job, remember the last words were this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter concludes his own sermon with this very inspiring word. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone. Whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone. Everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And everyone means just that. Everyone. Peter didn't understand that. Peter thought everyone meant Every Jew, 
And those who were far off, you Jews who have been spread in the exile throughout all around the Mediterranean. He didn't get it. It would only be later, and it would take another vision for him to finally catch on that the Messiah of the Jews was the Savior of the peoples of the whole world. And so I make this appeal to you, whoever you are. Repent. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, you may have been raised in the church like I was. may even have held an office. You may have been a teacher. Maybe you're someone who has consciously rejected the Christian faith. Maybe you're someone with all of the credentials of a, you know, of a good person. Maybe you've been the black sheep of the family. It does not matter. You cannot be too far away. You can't be too far gone. All you need to do is to repent. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can you be so morally good, so church-filled, that you can rest upon your reputation and never need to repent. And call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, I was raised in church, and if you'd asked me, are you a Christian? Yeah. How do you know you're a Christian? Well, I believe in Jesus and I do this and I do that and I try to be a good person. You know, as Peter's colleague, Paul, made very clear in Romans 3, he says there's no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by one means, by his grace as a gift. There is no one too sinful that he or she cannot repent and call upon Jesus to be saved. There is no one too good that he or she does not need to repent. Call upon Jesus alone for salvation. Repent. Believe. And be saved. That is the promise held out to you. We do give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that according to your plan, according to your foreknowledge, that he was crucified to make atonement for our sins, that he was raised again from the dead, that he has ascended on high, that he is there at your right hand. And we give you praise that in that work that was prophesied, that is the fulfillment of all the scriptures, is our salvation. And that we, whoever we are, whatever has been our background, need but repent, call upon our Lord Jesus alone for salvation. In his name we pray. Amen.